People that are involved in the occult, they talk about entry points or gateways, like a Ouija board or some graphic video game or perhaps a child's book full of fairies and spiritism. What appears to be harmless, innocuous fascination can actually hook an innocent person and lead them into further, more sinister stimulation. Well, this was the effect that the sin of Jeroboam had on the folks of the northern kingdom. Jeroboam's golden calves conditioned Israel to accept a worse form of idolatry, Ahab's blasphemous bull. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that it was Ahab's wife, the Phoenician princess Jezebel, that taught Baal worship to Israel. It turns out that Ahab had married the wicked witch. Jezebel was from a Phoenician family. She was a princess in the royal court. When she married Ahab, her goal became to spread the religion of the Phoenicians in Israel. She wanted Baal worship to be the accepted religion of the state. You might say, a Phoenician blinds Ahab and it means curtains for Israel. Maybe I should answer that after all. <laughs> and yet in Israel's darkest hour, God sends one of His brightest lights. He raises up a miracle-working prophet, verse 1, And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these days, except at my word. Notice suddenly, Elijah just sort of springs onto the scene. Without introduction, he appears out of the biblical blue. All we're told of his pedigree or his background is that he was a Tishbite. We don't know really what that means. It could refer to his family, possibly his hometown. We're also told that he was from Gilead, east of the Jordan, the land on the Jordanian side of the Jordan River. Elijah means Yahweh is my God. And here was a man who was jealous for God. Elijah appears already at work, confronting King Ahab. And notice Elijah, he sees himself standing, not before Ahab, but before the Lord. He says in verse 1, the Lord God of Israel before whom I stand. you got to understand, Ahab was a wild man. He possessed a violent, explosive temper. He could order your execution as easy as a pizza from Domino's. And this is why it took nerve. It took nerves of steel to confront this wicked king. It's been said, Elijah saw only God feared only God and spoke only the words of God. In fact, Elijah was a man of God who received God's power the same way that you and I receive the power of God. As James chapter 5, verse 17 puts it, he prayed earnestly. Hey, Elijah was a man of prayer. He was fearless before men because he spent time before God. James said he prayed earnestly that he might that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for 3 years and 6 months. You remember in Noah's day God judged Israel or judged the world 
by drying up the heavens, by flood, dry, drying up the heavens by spilling out the water and flooding the earth. He flooded the earth for 40 days, remember. Well, Elijah does the opposite. He tells King Ahab that God is going to judge Israel by drying up the heavens for over 40 months. And note Elijah tells the king that there'll be no shortcuts out of his dilemma. The road to repentance will pass through Elijah. The prophet tells him, it's not going to rain again except at my word. Elijah was big. Elijah was bold. He was one of the Bible's mightiest men. Well, verse 2 tells us, Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. God gave Elijah the hit and run sign. The prophet pronounces God's judgment and then he splits for safety's sake. A hideout is prepared for Elijah. And I'm sure this seclusion was not just for his protection, but it was also for his preparation. For a while alone, Elijah could listen to God. By the brook, he was able to quiet his heart. He also had to learn to trust God there by the brook Cherith because two square meals a day were provided for him supernaturally. Verse 4 tells us, It will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. God directed Elijah to camp out by a tiny tributary that dumps its water into the Jordan River. The brook Cherith supplied him water, and Elijah's meals were supernaturally catered. His food was flown in, literally. He ate bread and meat twice a day, and the ravens made the deliveries. Several nights ago, I was watching a nature show on television, and I saw a bird swoop down and pluck a fish out of the water and fly off with the fish stuck in its talons. Hey, since God was providing, I imagine that Elijah ate rainbow trout twice a day, maybe salmon, char-grilled salmon for all we know. All I know is that Elijah was raving over the menu, trust me. <laughs> and it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. The drought had finally taken its toll on Elijah's water supply. And then the word of the Lord came to him saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there. To provide for you. Zarepta was a small town northward in the land of Sidon. Now Luke chapter 4 gives us fascinating insight into this story. Jesus tells us why God sent Elijah to what was a Gentile country. You see the drought had created a severe famine. And God couldn't stand to see folks suffer. God longed to work a miracle. God wanted to bless somebody, but there was nobody in Israel with enough faith to ask for his blessing. Understand, this is a problem that God often faces. You see, God gets antsy. He loves to pour out his provision. He wants to lavish his blessings on his people. But seldom are they humble enough to ask. 
All too often they're proud, they're self-sufficient. And God looks at those proud, self-sufficient faces and He grows discouraged. There's nobody here I can bless, so I'll have to move on somewhere else. Hey, God is here tonight. And God is wanting to heal and help and bless and forgive. But if we're all too proud to ask Him for His blessing, hey, God will go down to Presbyterian Church. Or He'll go over to the Baptist Church or the Methodist Church. That's what Jesus said to those in Nazareth. He says, if you won't believe, God will even go to the Gentiles and bless them. And that's what happened here. Israel lacked faith. And so God sent the prophet to the Gentile city of Zarepta to a weak widow, but a widow who was willing to trust in God's promise. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. He wants something to eat and drink. So she said, As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little jar of a little oil in a jar. And see, I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. This woman has been gathering sticks for her and her son's last meal. Her pantry now is almost depleted. She's down to her last handful of flour, just a few drops of oil in a jar. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me. And afterward, make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. Notice this. If she's willing to put another person's need ahead of her own, a miracle will occur. Hey, bake Elijah a small cake with the little you have left and a large bounty will result that will feed you until the rains come. God will see to it that her needs are met for the remainder of the time. And that's exactly what happens. So when she went away and did according to the word of Elijah, she and he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was never used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. She never has to replenish her bin of flour. It never comes up empty. There's always more left. Like with Jesus, the five loaves and two fish kept multiplying. God worked a miracle of multiplication on behalf of this widow. And there is an important lesson for us here. God's miracles don't happen for selfish people. A never-ending supply of provision exists for people who share, not hoard. How many of you want to see a miracle in your life? Raise your hand. How many of you want to see a miracle in your life? Well, here's what you do. Go home tonight, get out your flour and your oil, and start giving it away as the Lord directs. You try to give it all away. I'll bet you can't. Because the more you give, the more God will give back. The more He'll replenish. The more He'll see to it that you have a never-ending supply. 
I love what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. You go home and you try to give it all away. See if you can. I bet you can. I bet God will make sure that your cup never runs dry. Well, verse 17 tells us, now it happened. After these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. And his sickness was so serious that there was no more breath left in him. Her son died. So she said to Elijah, What have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? Isn't this amazing? She assumes that the boy's death was the result of Elijah's judgment. You know, and I think Elijah got a little peeved. I mean, what does God have to do to prove to this woman that his intentions toward her are merciful, not judgmental? And I think God sometimes has the same issues with us. We're so guilt-ridden, we keep thinking that God wants to judge us, when in reality, He wants to bless us. He wants to do good things in our lives. And He said to her, Give me your son. And so He took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where He was staying and laid him on His bed. Then he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodged by killing her son? And he stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. You got to admit, this is pretty weird. What if you walked into the funeral parlor and you saw me up in the casket laying face down on top of the corpse, stretched out on top of the corpse? What if you saw that? Man, call for the straitjackets. Pastor Sandy has flipped. He's cracking up under the strain. That's probably why Elijah took the young boy's corpse to his room so nobody would see him. I'll never forget one night I had a friend of mine who passed away and I was invited to the funeral home to pay my respects and when I arrived, no one else was in the room. I got there early. It was just me and the corpse of the boy who had died. And you know, I thought about Elijah. Now don't worry. I didn't spread out on top of him. But you know what I did do? I did walk over to the corpse and I laid hands on him and I prayed and I asked God if he would raise up the boy. Now I know he was already embalmed, but I'm telling you, I still believe that if God had desired to do it, God would have raised that boy up right then and right there. And so I asked. Either my faith wasn't strong enough or it wasn't God's will, but I really believe that if God, had call, if God calls the worlds into existence out of nothing, and indeed He does, then He can raise a young boy from the dead. Nothing is impossible for God. Verse 22 agrees. Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back to him, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that you are a man of God. 
and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. 1 Kings chapter 18. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab, and there was a severe famine in Samaria. And Ahab had called Obadiah, who was in charge of his house. Now, Obadiah, he feared the Lord greatly. For so it was, while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them, 50 to a cave, and had fed them with bread and water. Now, evidently, while God had Elijah hiding from Ahab, God also had Obadiah working for Ahab. Verse 3 tells us Obadiah was in charge of Ahab's house. He had a high-level post in the royal court. We're also told that Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. It's interesting, both Elijah and Obadiah lived in an evil apostate time. They both were faced with ungodly culture, but their witness took a different form. Elijah, understand, stood on the outside of the culture. He hid by the brook. Then he lived in exile up in Sidon. Finally, God uses him to prophesy against the ungodly. Whereas Obadiah, he takes a different tact. He works from within the culture. He serves God in the king's court. While Jezebel orders the execution of God's spokesman, his prophets, Obadiah comes to the rescue of 100 prophets. He hides them and he feeds them and he protects them. A model for believers today. God calls some of us to a ministry of confrontation. We engage the enemy in supernatural showdowns. We point out the ungodliness of the culture and call people to repent, while other believers work behind the scenes. They permeate the ungodly culture with a godly influence. They shine their light and do what they can for God within the system. And God used both Elijah and Obadiah. He uses both confrontation and infiltration. Verse 5. And Ahab had said to Obadiah, Go into the land to all the springs of water into all the brooks. Perhaps we may find grass to keep the horses and mules alive. Remember, there's a drought going on. And so that we will not have to kill any livestock. So they divided the land between them to explore it. Ahab went one way by himself and Obadiah went another way by himself. Now as Obadiah was on his way, suddenly Elijah met him. And he recognized him and fell on his face and he said, Is that you, my Lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your master Elijah is here. And so he said, How have I sinned that you are delivering your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? He's afraid that even the mention of Elijah's name will provoke Ahab to rise up and do him harm. As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to hunt for you. And when they said he is not here, he took an oath from the kingdom or nation that they could not find you. And now you say, go tell my, your master Elijah is here. And it shall come to pass as soon as I am gone from you that the Spirit of the Lord will carry you to a place I do not know. So when I go and tell Ahab and he cannot find me, he will kill me. But I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. 
Was it not reported to my Lord that I did what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets, fifty to a cave, and fed them with bread and water? <laughs> Obadiah is saying to Elijah, I'm on your side, man. But he's just afraid of taking a stand. He's not afraid of taking a stand, but he's afraid of drawing Ahab's anger by unnecessarily risking his life. And now you say, go tell your master Elijah is here. He will kill me. Then Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely present myself to him today. In other words, I'll be here when you bring back Ahab. Don't worry. And so Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Verse 17. Then it happened, when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? Ahab wants to blame all of his problems on Elijah. We talked a little bit about blaming this morning, didn't we? But Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. In other words, I'm not your problem. Elijah wasn't his problem. Ahab's idolatry had brought on the nation's hardships. And what happens next is one of the most famous events in all of the Bible. And the one, of course, for which Elijah is most remembered. Elijah calls out the prophets of Baal. Verse 19. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel. The 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Azariah who eat at Jezebel's table. Azariah, remember, was Baal's female counterpart. She was the evil fertility goddess. But notice now, 950 priests of this idolatrous cult, notice where do they eat? At Jezebel's table. In other words, the Baal worship is receiving official financial backing from the state of Israel. The king's own house is feeding the prophets of Baal. And so Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. Ahab accepts this challenge of Elijah. And he arranges a spiritual showdown on the slopes of Mount Carmel. He calls all Israel to be witnesses. Mount Carmel lies right on the border of the Valley of Jezreel. And so there were plenty, plenty of room for the people to all gather out in the valley to observe this showdown. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. Now this word translated falter, it means limp. In other words, Israel was a wet noodle. Israel had no backbone. Their loyalties were based on convenience rather than commitment. And Elijah is saying, it's time to decide. Elijah is drawing a line in the sand. And notice the people's response. But the people answered him not a word. You know, it was Dante who wrote, The hottest place in hell is reserved for those who in times of crisis preserve their neutrality. Hey, spiritually, you cannot ride the fence forever. 
There comes a time when you have to decide, when God draws a line in the sand, and you have to decide who it is that you serve. Guys, remember, the only things in the middle of the road are yellow streaks and dead skunks. You don't want to be in the middle of the road. There's a time for each of us to choose who it is we serve. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them give us two bulls and let them choose one bull for themselves. Cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord, Yahweh of Israel. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. That's interesting. Baal was the God of the sky for the Phoenicians. They believed that it was Baal who sent down the fire, who ordered the lightning. Surely, if Baal was real, all he would have to do is flick his bick. Boom, like the sacrifice. He's the God of the sky. He's the God of the lightning. And so all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. What an event now. What high drama. Now here's a showdown. Here's a sudden death shootout between Yahweh and Baal, between Elijah and the pagan prophets, between the law of Moses and the religion of Jezebel. On the surface, you would have thought Elijah was outnumbered 850 to 1. But you would have thought wrong. For the God of Elijah more than makes up for numerical deficits. Verse 25. Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one bull for yourselves. Elijah gives them their pick. And prepare it first, for you are many. And call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. So they took the bull which was given them and they prepared it. And called on the name of Baal from morning even till noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, no one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they had made. Prophets of Baal, they get first crack. They start crying out. They start praying their prayers and chanting their chants from morning until noon, but no fire. They're dancing about. They're chanting and wailing. They're trying to get Baal's attention. And of course, this summed up their results for the past three years. For remember, Baal's the Lord of the sky. He was the Lord of the weather. They had been crying out to him to end the drought for three and a half years, but to no avail. Verse 27 tells us. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is meditating, or he is busy, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is sleeping and must be awake. Maybe your God's taking a nap. Or he's staring at his belly button in omen or something. Here's the Living Bible paraphrase of verse 27. I, really, I like this. Listen to this. Elijah began mocking them. You'll have to shout louder than that, he scoffed, to catch the attention of your God. Perhaps he's talking to someone or is out sitting on the toilet. Or maybe he's away on a trip or he's asleep and needs to be wakened. In contrast to Baal, we read in Psalm 121, verse 4, of the one true God. He who keeps Israel shall neither slumber or sleep. 
Yahweh, the true God, is always attentive to our prayers. And that's about to be proven. Well, after Elijah mocks them, the prophets of Baal, they get desperate. So they cried out aloud and they cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances until the blood gushed out on them. Baal worship involved masochism and self-mutilation. And when midday was passed, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. They've been at it now all day. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. The prophets of Baal keep up their antics all day long. It's three in the afternoon. They've been at it for nine hours. Not one spark. Not one flicker. Not even a warm coal. Now it's Elijah's turn. Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him. He called the crowd up close. <laughs> he wanted them to see what the God of Israel was about to do. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. And then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seahs of seed, or about three-quarters of a bushel of seed. And he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood, and said, Fill four water pots with water, and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And the water pots in Jesus' day, they held probably 20 to 30 gallons of water. So it's going to be a lot of water, four, four pots. Then he said, do it a second time. They did it a second time. A third time. And they did it a third time. Now by now, this meat and the wood has been saturated with close to 300 gallons of water. 300 gallons of water. You know when a football team wins a big game, you know what they do? They dump the Gatorade on the head of their coach. And whenever they do that, they usually use about a 10-gallon bucket. Hey, Elijah soaks down the sacrifice in the altar with the equivalent of about 30 Gatorade showers. 30 Gatorade showers. Verse 35 says, So the water ran all around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, and notice that, he doesn't even call a special meeting with God. You know, it's just at the time of the evening sacrifice. This is just a daily thing. You know, Elijah's not really going out of his way here. God is not going to be going out of his way here. God is, this is nothing special for God. God is just going to do what God does when he's asked. It's at the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. God is about to light a barbecue. And Elijah makes sure that there's no doubt as to the source of the miracle. He prays just a simple prayer at the evening sacrifice. Notice there's no dancing. There's no chanting. There's no slashing himself. None of the antics of the prophets of Baal. Elijah just steps up and he makes a simple request of God. And we're told in verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice. 
and the wood and the stones and the dust. And it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. Yahweh, He is God. There was no denying the source of this miracle. The moment Elijah addresses the God of Israel, fire falls from heaven. The fire ignites the wet wood. It burns up the soaked sacrifice. And it even vaporizes the water in the trench. Everything is consumed. And please take note of this imagery. It's very important. Notice, God can ignite a watered down, waterlogged, all washed up sacrifice. Just like you. (laughs) You ever feel like a soggy sacrifice? I do sometimes. I feel like a baseball that's been sitting in a mud puddle for five days. About twice as heavy as it ought to be. Twice as burdened down. Good for nothing. Ever feel like a soggy sacrifice? Here's the beauty of the story. God can ignite even a soggy sacrifice when he's asked. If you'll just acknowledge that, God, I want to be your sacrifice. I want to give my life to you. And then ask him to send down a fire of enthusiasm and a fire of zeal and a fire of joy from heaven upon you. He'll set your heart ablaze. Yes, he will. Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. He takes advantage of the opportunity. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. Elijah immediately seized the 850 prophets of Baal. And since none of them could make Baal, they were all executed. As a matter of fact, under the law of Moses, the death penalty was prescribed for a false prophet. They were just following the law. Then Elijah said to Ahab, Go up and eat and drink, for there is the sound of abundance of rain. I don't know what an abundance of rain sounds like, but he heard it. Remember, it hasn't rained now for three and a half years. That's a long time. And really, this day is like all other days. It's no different. But somehow Elijah hears rain. There's not a cloud in the sky, but he hears rain. And so Ahab went up. He went up to eat and drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. And then he bowed down on the ground and he put his face between his knees. And notice Elijah's posture. This is the only time in the Bible when a person curls up in a ball to pray. He puts his face between his knees. His servant, go up now, look toward the sea. Carmel is right by the coast, and from the top of the mountain, you can look westward toward the Mediterranean Sea. There's a view from the top of Carmel looking westward. And so he went up and he looked and he said, There's nothing. And seven times he said, Notice he prays his prayer seven times. First six times, no results, no clouds, no nothing. He says, Go again. Then it came to pass, though, the seventh time. He didn't give up. Have you given up praying about Well, I've prayed about that. I've prayed twice for that. I've prayed four times for that. I've been praying. I've prayed prayed six times for that. Elijah prayed six times for this before he ever got an answer. It was on the seventh time that he said, There is a cloud as small as a man's hand 
rising out of the sea, but that's all it took. Elijah knew that God had answered, and from that small cloud, a deluge was about to be poured out upon Israel. And so he said, Go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. In other words, it's going to be a washout, man. You better hurry up and get home. It's about to rain. It's going to be a gully washer, as they say down in Texas, a toad strangler. Man, it's going to rain. Now, it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind. And there was a heavy rain. In James chapter 5, the Apostle James is teaching the church about the power of prayer. And he reaches into the Old Testament for an illustration because he understands that prayer of all things is probably more caught than taught. And so he, he draws out some inspiration. He reaches into the Old Testament and he pulls out an example. And guess who James pulls out? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain. He prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Understand, the sole difference here between drought and deluge is one man's passionate prayer. That was the difference. And James concludes, the effective Fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Hey, believe what you would like about the predetermined will of God. But our text is clear that God stopped the rain and then He started the rain because of one man's prayer. Elijah prayed and it moved the hand of God. And here's the moral of the story. If you're experiencing a spiritual or a financial or a relational drought in your life or an emotional drought, if your life lacks the showers of blessing that you would like and you haven't fervently requested them and asked God, then you've got nobody to blame but yourself. Because the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man It avails much. Elijah prayed prayed, and God stopped the rain. Elijah prayed again and the Lord sent rain. So you know what I suggest? I suggest we all go home and pray. Because God hears and answers prayer. Verse 45 tells us, So Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. And then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah. And he girded up his loins. In other words, he pulled his robe up and kind of tucked it in under his belt so that he could move, so that he could run. And he ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Now, though Ahab may have been slowed by the rain, it appears here that there was a miracle of supernatural speed. Because we're told Elijah ran and the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah. Now, we don't know if Ahab rode back on a horse or whether he rode back in a chariot. But Ahab rode, whereas Elijah ran. And Elijah evidently covers the 14-mile trip back to Jezreel first. He gets there first. Why this was so important, we don't know. Chapter 19. 
And here's a thought before we get into chapter 19. God knows that the best of men are but men at best. I hope you know that. That there are no superheroes in the body of Christ. We're all just men and women. And we all just put our britches on the same way. Nobody has any special powers that are not given by God. God knows that the best of men are but men at best. And in chapter 19 of 1 Kings, Elijah proves that he too has clay feet just like the rest of us. Yes, he was a mighty man of God. Just that, a man. James 5 verse 17 tells us, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah was vulnerable to the same discouragements, the same weaknesses, the same fits of despair that drag us down to. In fact, you can hardly believe the turnaround that occurs in chapter 19. Verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. When King Jezebel hears of Elijah's victories, Ahab's darling starts snarling. Jezebel promises that within 24 hours she'll have this prophet's head. He's killed state officials. My prophet, she says, and I'm going to kill him. Verse 3. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Now, this is absolutely amazing. This is the prophet, Elijah, who just faced off with 850 false prophets. And remember, they all had knives in their hands because they had been cutting and slashing themselves and all. Now he's threatened by one vile and vicious woman, and he bolts. He runs for his life. He flees 80 miles from Jezreel all the way to Beersheba, which was the southernmost site in the tribe of Judah, all the way to Beersheba. He's still not done. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. No, he, he got 80 miles down the road and then he stopped his servant. And he put him there and he went another day's journey into the desert. Now he's hidden from everyone. Nobody but God knows his whereabouts. Finally, alone in the desert, Elijah plops himself down under a broom tree, we're told. Broom trees were more like a bush than they were a tree. Broom trees, kind of like a desert shrub is what it was. And he prayed that he might die and said, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Elijah prays this bold and daring prayer for God to open the heavens. And in a three and a half year drought, he prays that God would send down fire from heaven and God does. He prays these bold and beautiful prayers, and now he prays a very silly, selfish prayer. He prays a prayer bathed in self-pity and poured out in fear. He asks God if he can just die. Amazing. In a matter of hours, Elijah has gone from fearless to fearful. Isn't that amazing?
Evidently, Elijah's expected victory. He expected his victory there at Mount Carmel to solve the problem permanently. I think that's what happened. He expected that when he won that victory on Mount Carmel, that Jezebel would roll over, that everyone would comply, that everyone would worship the God of Israel. But that's not what happened. He wasn't ready for just how entrenched Jezebel's resistance would be. On the heels of this enormous victory, he sinks into this deep, dark despair. Reminds me of a quote from C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters. If you've never read that book, you should. It's a wonderful book. And in this book, a senior demon is giving advice to an apprentice demon on how to attack the Christian. He says this, keep the subject, that is the Christian, that you're tempting. Keep the subject thinking that his trials will be over. So when they're not, he'll be continually disappointed. It's okay if he learns a lesson or two through his trials, just as long as you keep him thinking that one day all his trials will be gone. Whatever you do, never allow him to accept his trials as a permanent part of discipleship and something he must learn to endure. Now this is what happened to Elijah. He thought that the battle was over there on Mount Carmel. But when Queen Jezebel refused to admit defeat and raise her white flag, it caught Elijah off guard. And so he retreated. Elijah had grown weary and well-doing. He had become tired of the fight. And he was hoping that Mount Carmel would have been the battle to end all battles. It's ironic. But at the base of Mount Carmel, in that valley just below Mount Carmel, there is a huge valley known as the Valley of Jezreel, or we have another name for it. It's called Armageddon. And we're taught in Scripture that in the last days, the nations of this earth will gather to the Valley of Jezreel, to Armageddon, where there they will fight against Jesus when He returns to the earth. This, in the last days, is the battle that will end all battles. In the meantime, guys, life is full of skirmishes between good and evil, between the flesh and the spirit, between the kingdom and the world. This side of heaven, our struggle with the world and with the flesh and with the devil is never over. And we should never expect it to be. We have to keep fighting the battles. Verse 5. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Elijah's depression and just sort of his general dumpiness may have been triggered somewhat by exhaustion. Maybe even malnutrition. I mean, think about it. In the midst of the conflict there with the prophets of Baal, I mean, he may not have had time to sleep. Or he may have skipped lunch and not even had time to eat. It's funny. Whenever one of my boys acts grumpy and starts, you know, copping an attitude and acting kind of grumpy, their mother always asks, have you had anything to eat? The other day I heard her on the phone with Zach. And she just says, have you had anything to eat today? And, and you know what? Nine times out of ten, the answer is no. God realizes that one of the reasons for Elijah's moodiness here is, is he lacks food. He needs some food. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. And so he ate and drank and lay down again. 
God knew he needed something to eat. And God knows he's sleepy, so he lets him sleep a little while longer. You know, I have found that at certain times, the most spiritual thing I can do is eat a burger and take a nap. <laughs> it's true, man. It's true. We're all men. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And what he ate, I wish I knew. Here is the ultimate power bar and energy drink. On a single serving, Elijah travels 40 days and 40 nights across dangerous desert terrain. And he ends up at Mount Horeb, which was another name for Mount Sinai. The same mountain where Moses met with God. The burning bush, the Shekinah glory of God were seen by Moses on Mount Horeb. It's been said Elijah's outlook had become negative because his uplook had become nil. Elijah needs food and rest, but he also needs a fresh vision of God. And there was no better place for that than at Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave. And could it have been the same cave where God hid Moses as his glory passed by? You remember that story, Exodus chapter 33, verse 22? There it says that God told Moses, I will put you in the cleft of the rock or in the cave. And I will cover you with my hand. Moses was shielded as God's face came by. For no one can see God face to face. But then God removed his hand to let Moses see God's backside. Could it be that same cave? Well, Elijah spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? In other words, Elijah, you're a warrior. You're a soldier of God. What are you doing here? Why aren't you in the midst of the battle? And so he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. In verse 11, God gives instructions to his weary servant. He says, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. A strong wind. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire... A still, small voice. You see, Elijah was accustomed to God revealing himself in spectacular, star-spangled, fire-descending, attention-grabbing kinds of ways. But fire from heaven, guys, is the exception rather than the rule. Remember the rushing mighty wind and the tongues of fire happened just once in the book of Acts. The earthquake that rocked the upper room was a rare event. If we look for God only in the wind and in the earthquake and in the lightning, then we will live most of our lives having never heard from God. More often than not, God speaks to us as he did to Elijah 
through the still, small voice of His Holy Spirit. God communicates through inner breathings, through soul whispers. He impresses our desires. He works through our intents and our instincts. This is why you have to quiet your life. And you have to slow down your pace to really hear from God. So often, you remember, Jesus went to the mountaintop by himself, alone, to spend time with the Father. It was for this very reason. Jesus was listening to the still, small voice of God. The devil has our world filled with distractions. We're bombarded every day with various voices. Every car has a radio. We keep a telephone strapped to our sides right on our belt. Most homes have a television in every room. Our computers hooked up to the internet. An endless stream of information, a million opinions from a million places flow through our minds with so many voices. No wonder the one voice that matters gets drowned out. Years ago, there was a tragic accident. It occurred up on the Georgia-Tennessee border. A school bus was hit by a train. Three of the students on board the school bus were killed. And an investigation concluded that the train had sounded its whistle, but the bus driver didn't hear it because of the various noises that were on the bus. Those noises had drowned out the warning whistle. And the same scenario can put you and I in danger. When the voices of life become so loud that they drown out this still small voice of God, we too are headed for a wreck. If you and I are serious about walking with God and knowing His will, we need to find a Mount Horeb where we can slow down and listen. And listen. And really listen. And so it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Elijah had heard God speak. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Same question. And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. And they seek to take my life. Again, Elijah complains that he's been carrying God's torch all by himself. You know, there, there is nothing as discouraging as loneliness. And even if it's just the feeling of being alone, even if it's just a perceived loneliness, not necessarily the reality, hey, a perceived loneliness can get to you, can bother you. God has a remedy. Then the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Maholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael Jehu will kill, and whoever escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. God recruits new soldiers for the battle, a righteous king and a trusted assistant. And this is interesting here. Notice, God's cure for Elijah's loneliness 
is not someone to mentor him, but it's for him to mentor someone else. This Elisha. He provides a pupil, not a peer. And that's interesting. The teacher who gives is always blessed more than the student who receives. If you're lonely for someone who can minister to you, you look for somebody you can minister to. You can invest in their life. You can share yourself with them. That's the cure for loneliness. And yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. God wants Elijah to know that he he had not left him alone. God had 7,000 prophets in Israel who had refused to bow their knee to Baal. Hey, there's always somebody there. You know, sometimes we get real discouraged. Sometimes we get real alone. We assume we must be the only Christian in this high school. I'm the only Christian in this company or in this neighborhood. But rarely is that the case. God always leaves a believing remnant in almost every location. God has his people stationed on every corner. You just haven't looked hard enough for that Christian friend. He's there. She's there. You just need to look. Ask God to provide you some fellowship and he'll open your eyes to a fellow believer. Well, verse 19. So he departed from there and he found Elisha, the son of Japhat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him and he was with the 12th. Wow, a yoke of 12 oxen. This implies that Elisha was a very wealthy man, a wealthy farmer. And then Elisha passed by him and threw his man- Elijah passed by Elisha and threw his mantle on him. The mantle was the prophet's uniform. It was probably an animal skin, a fur. And he threw it. Elijah threw his mantle on Elisha. It was a way of calling him to discipleship, offering him an apprenticeship. It was an invitation for Elisha to come and be Elijah's follower. Threw on him an animal skin or a fur. When you received it, it was as if you were saying, there's no limit to how fur I'll go with God. I've received this mantle. And Elisha left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? In other words, this isn't my call to ministry. God is calling you to the ministry here. This is not me, my doing. This is God's doing. And so Elijah turned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. And I love how Elijah accepts his call to the ministry. He slaughters his oxen. These were the tools by which he made a living. He slaughtered his oxen. He cooks them on a fire that he starts with their wooden yokes that he's broken apart. And then he feeds the meat to the people. In other words, he's burning his bridges, man. He's liquidating his assets. He's not going back to this kind of work. He's going to follow Elijah. He has no intentions of keeping his options open. This is total commitment. I was talking to my son the other night about how sometimes we leave our options open. You know, if this doesn't work out, you know, 
No, this is total commitment. Total commitment is when you burn your bridges. When you say, this is it. I'm going to follow God regardless of the cost, regardless of the price. I'm burning my bridges. I'm, I'm chopping up my oxen and I'm roasting them on my wooden yokes and I'm feeding them to my people. There's no going back now. You know, too many people set out to serve the Lord with reservations. Oh, they'll step out just as long as they can step back if things don't work out the way they planned. But if you're sure of God's calling, why not just go for it? It's been said, faith is willing to venture beyond the point of no return. I'll close with the story of Cortez. You heard about how Cortez conquered the Aztecs. He sailed his ships into the harbor. The men boarded the boats and they came to the shore. He rallied all his soldiers right there on the shore. He said, men, we're going to go. We're going to fight. We're going to win this land. And then all of a sudden, they heard explosions behind them and they looked out into the harbor and there were their boats all burning in the harbor. All of a sudden, that upped the ante, didn't it? That raised the stakes just a little bit. Hey, when we decide to follow Jesus, we need to burn our bridges. We need to burn our boats. We need to make our commitment 100% to the Lord.